episode number 36 of Pop Culturally Deprived, and today we're going to be talking about Little Shop of Horrors on your Looks Like You're Not Happy, Lest I Open a Vein podcast. I'm Mandy Kay. And I'm Matthew Vose. This week we're joined by the wonderfully amazing Dr. Kelly Jones. Kelly is the host of the Southern Fried Scholar podcast and co-host with Lonnie Diane Rich of a podcast that is changing my life. Big, strong, yes. I am so excited that she's here with us today. Suddenly Kelly, podcasting (laughs) beside me. And she does not give orders and she does not condescend. Oh my god, I love y'all so much. (laughs) And I am so incredibly jealous of your vocal talent because I cannot carry a tune in a (laughs) bucket. But thank you so much for inviting me to be on Pop Culturally Deprived. I love this show and y'all have covered some of my favorite movies and TV shows like Doctor Who and Firefly and Ghostbusters and Monty Python and I'm sorry Mandy, I'm totally (laughs) Matthew on that one. And uh, Dead Poet Society and Rocky Horror and Clue and American Beauty. And So thanks for having me on to talk about Little Shop of Horrors because my love for this movie is as ridiculous as the movie itself. Mm -hmm. (laughs) First question to kick us off for the day. Mandy, why did you never watch Little Shop of Horrors? To continue our trend of late, I really just don't know. (laughs) I have no idea. I only recently found out that this was a musical. I didn't even know that. And it had Rick Moranis in it. So all I can figure is I just didn't know enough about it. And so it wouldn't have even been something I knew I needed to watch. I started watching it, I think, when I was nine or ten years old. And I have probably seen it 50 times, maybe more. Um, It still makes me laugh every single time. I think I might have been about the same age when I saw it as well. It was on television. And I just remember the next day in the playground, like everyone going, oh, my word, did you see that film last night? How crazy, how funny. (laughs) (laughs) So a little bit of history on the film. The Little Shop of Horrors is a rock musical horror comedy film, which was released in 1986. It is an adaptation of a stage show, which is itself based on a low-budget 1960 B-movie horror of the same name. It was directed by Frank Oz and stars Rick Moranis, Ellen Green and Vincent Gardenia, with appearances from Steve Martin, James Belushi, John Candy, Christopher Guest and Bill Murray. Levi Stubbs, the lead singer of The Four Tops, was the voice of Audrey too. And there were two fun casting trivia facts that mm-hmm. I found because um, y'all, I'm a researcher and I had to dive <laughs> in like to, to understand any more about this movie. But the role of Audrey was initially offered to Cindy Lauper, um, who wanted it but wasn't available with her schedule. And so when she wasn't available, Frank Oz wanted Ellen Green, who had played the role very successfully on the off-Broadway production for four years. But apparently, it's really unusual for the stage counterpart to come in and, and play the movie role. But I think Ellen Gray knocked it out of the park, and I can't imagine a different Audrey. Um, mm. And then for Mandy Kay, because I know you're fascinated by improv, um, <laughs> Bill Murray's scene as Steve Martin's dental patient was completely improv, and he made up different lines for every take. So they didn't write a script for that. <laughs> I can actually believe that, because I think my reaction to that scene was, Holy crap, that scene was weird AF. Mm. <laughs> you don't go to the dentist and shout that you want a candy bar, candy bar, candy bar. <laughs> in, in the original film, uh, that role is played by Jack Nicholson as a mm-hmm. character called Wilberforce. Okay. It's, it's just as strange. <laughs> I kind of feel like I want to go watch the original movie because, I mean, that wasn't a musical, no. right? It was just a no. straight B horror movie. I don't recommend it. it. It's really bad. (laughs) Okay. so bad. (laughs) All right. Well, if you are like me and have not seen Little Shop of Horrors, it is about a nerdy man who works in a plant shop and finds a very unusual plant that changes his life. So there were two taglines for this movie, um, and I found like an old movie poster from 1986 that I just loved the tagline that said, a singing plant, a daring hero... A sweet girl, a demented dentist. (laughs) What more could you ask for? Um, And the other tagline I found is, um, don't feed the plants, which I thought was funny. Yeah, those are both great. 
that's nice because that's the final song from the play from the musical yes mm. mm-hmm. okay clever <laughs> well how did you watch the film matthew where was it available uh, in the uk uh it wasn't available i rented it on amazon prime okay kelly how about you um i watched it first on hulu and then sadly it went away and so I bought it on Amazon because, honestly, I'm going to be watching it again. And <laughs> there's a new Blu-ray director's cut coming out in October, and I will probably be buying that, too. Awesome. Uh, I actually also watched it on Hulu um, three days ago, and because it was the end of the month, it was no longer available for me to rewatch it last night. So, unfortunately, I don't think it's available to stream anywhere unless you pay for it. So... Sorry, you guys. Mandy, you only just found out some of the film, I think, just before you watched it. So what were your expectations going into the film? Gosh, that's... There were... A, honestly, I kind of had a lot of expectations. I, I was familiar with the line, or at least the idea of the line, feed me Seymour. Um, mm. I've heard that I, I've heard that before, like, over and over again. And I kind of just knew it was related to this movie. I knew that the plant wanted to eat things. I didn't realize the plant ate people. Um, (laughs) And then, you know, once we started talking about doing it for the show, that's when I found out that it had Rick Moranis in it, that it was a musical. And so my only thought was, how could I not like it? (laughs) And what's your your previous experience of the director, Frank Oz, and the stars of Rick Moranis, Steve Martin? Well, Rick Moranis is always going to be the dad from Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Always. I don't care how many other things I've seen him in. That's who he is for me. (laughs) Because I watched that movie over and over and over again as a kid. Uh, Frank Oz, as director, the only other thing I've seen that he's done was The Stepford Wives, which was weird. And then I also found out he did the voice of Yoda. So I've Mm. definitely seen all of the Star Wars movies. Um, (laughs) And uh, uh, Steve Martin is somebody else that really is just someone I'm aware of through osmosis, I think. My first Steve Martin was Father of the Bride. And so that's the character I always think of whenever I think of Steve Martin. Um, Although now I really like some of his banjo playing comedy. Mm. (laughs) And, you know, someone you didn't ask about is Alan Menken, who did the music. And he also did the music of basically every Disney movie I've ever loved. He got hired to do The Little Mermaid because of how strong the songs were in this movie, which I think is amazing because he basically started the whole Disney renaissance in the 80s. Yeah, basically. Yeah. And um, Audrey's I Want song, you know, from this movie, The Somewhere That's Green, was created by the lyricist Howard Ashman and then, you know, Alan Mickin as composer, who did The Little Mermaid together. And they said Ariel's I Want song, that part of your world, was actually inspired by Somewhere That's Green. And they used to call it Somewhere That's Wet when they were writing it and producing nice. The Little Mermaid. And I that's thought amazing. That was funny. Yeah, but as an educator, like Frank Oz is one of my heroes because um, he worked very closely with Jim Henson and brought Sesame Street to life, um, and then brought the Muppet Show to life. And both of his parents were professional puppeteers, which I just thought was fascinating. But I think the influence, the positive influence that he has had, you know, in in society and and just for education in general is is amazing. I, I found a. Uh interesting bit on some of the puppeteers one of the chaps who is in the doo-wop group during dadu um is also one of the puppeteers and oh, cool. he he was one of the puppeteers on farscape nice mm. although i imagine that there's a lot of overlap with puppeteers when we watch movies that have puppets because yeah there probably are. aren't a ton of puppeteers in hollywood <laughs> and he'd also I, this is quite tenuous, but the same chap. Uh, so he's a gentleman called Mac Wilson. He is listed as the movement choreographer for one of the guest stars on Doctor Who. Oh, cool. So random crossover going on there. He's, he's also, as I say, puppeteer, so he's worked on Labyrinth and Dark Crystal and so on. Um, I couldn't find anyone with a crossover to Buffy, I'm afraid. Oh, I did. Oh, yeah. <laughs> nice. Go on. 
I was not going to let y'all down. <laughs> so um, I didn't pull a citation for it because this is actually an academic theory textbook. But there is, there's a couple of books about um, music and the role of music in pop culture and the role of music in film criticism. And there was a, a chapter that talked about camp and kind of the, the movement of campy sci-fi. And it actually mm. had a paragraph connecting the Rocky Horror Picture Show to Little Shop of Horrors to Once More with Feeling from Buffy mm. the Vampire Slayer. So if you think about it like that, we can yeah. still pull in Buffy, which I felt was incredibly important to bring to you today. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yes. And absolutely, I, I can see similarities in all three of them, definitely. Mm-hmm. Particularly the sort of uh, comedy horror aspects of both this and Buffy? Yes. Mm. Okay, Mandy, did you enjoy The Little Shop of Horrors? I did. I did. And I've had the song Yay! stuck in my head since well really since this morning when I binge listened to the soundtrack <laughs> but um, I really liked the songs the, the first time through um, but just listening to them once you know you don't get to sing along and really kind of understand what's happening um, mm. but they're so catchy that you can't help but have the tune stuck in your head it's great Kelly do you want to start us off talking about the ending because that's almost the big conversation about this yes so I knew that the ending that we see kind of in the the theatrical version or the the most well-known movie version, Hmm. I knew it had a different ending than the original, but I had never really looked it up before. And it is a fascinating story because at the time, and I didn't know this either, Little Shop of Horrors was Warner Brothers' most expensive movie that they had ever produced. Wow. And Frank Oz spent a full... 20%, 20%, like a fifth of his budget, and a full year of production time creating the the ending that he really envisioned, which was total destruction and <laughs> tragedy and death of the main characters. And I had never seen it before. And so I looked it up and watched it. And I don't know what it says about me as a person, but like I loved it. <laughs> it is so it is so campy and it's like Godzilla and World of the of you know Wars and all of the New York destruction Hollywood movies that you've ever seen. Um and this movie competed with Alien for a lot of awards. And I think okay. if they had that original movie in play and that ending in place, they might have won <laughs> because the visual of it, especially knowing that there was no CGI. There was not computer graphics. You know, like, knowing that they physically had to make this stuff was amazing. Um, but when they played it for test audiences, they hated it so much that Frank Oz had to very, very reluctantly cut it. And, I mean, it's like 20 minutes that's, that was cut. Mm. And remake a happy ending. And there's only a tiny hint of future mayhem and terror in, like, a little baby Audrey Two plant at the end. Um, <laughs> but you can see the original ending on YouTube, um, and will and it will be included in the director's cut, uh, Blu-ray that comes out in October. So, but there is a, there's a scene toward the very end where a giant Audrey II plant is up on the Statue of Liberty. And it made me think of the Weeping Angels. And now I desperately need a Doctor Who episode guest starring Rick Moranis and Ellen Green, where they have to help the doctor defeat the Audrey II plant army on their planet so that I could hear Audrey too say, feed me doctor. Like <laughs> I want that so bad. <laughs> oh, that's pretty great. Uh, we will include a link to the alternate ending in the show notes for anybody who hasn't seen it. I watched it this morning and did not react quite the same as Kelly. <laughs> I mean, I didn't just hysterically laugh for 20 minutes. <laughs> But I yeah, wasn't. I don't know impressed. what's wrong with me. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know what's wrong with you either. But <laughs> I, I was super impressed by the the practical effects. You know, watching kind mm-hmm. of what they did and how they did it, considering this was what 1986. Mm-hmm. It's pretty great. Although yeah. I will say, I do prefer the movie ending just because I'm a sucker for happy endings, as we all know. Yeah. So the first the first I'd heard about the uh, different ending was an article ages ago about the origin of um, outtakes and blooper reels going at the end of films. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and this was the thing that sort of referenced to 
kind of create that idea. There's a, a quote from, I think, Frank Oz about how it lands better when you see it uh, on a theatrical production because the the thing that really hurt them in the test screenings is the death of Audrey and Seymour. Like people mm-hmm. are cheering for them and really excited for them as it goes on, and then suddenly they're killed and Audrey too takes over the world. Um, and it, he made a, a comment about how in the theatre you get this ending that's quite dark and, and quite ominous about uh, capitalism and commercialism, and then the actors all get up and take a bow and it's all happy because okay everyone's all right. But in the in the cinema you don't get that element of catharsis. Right. And and this article went on to talk about that was why uh, some films actually introduced bloopers at the end so you could see everyone being happy and funny without worrying about what, what had happened to them in the film. Oh, that's interesting. Mm. Mm-hmm. I, I started wondering about why it is that way in the theatre as well because it, it is really quite dark. He, he eats Seymour and then all oh, yeah. lots of Audrey's take and over the world. There's <laughs> even one that's worse than that. There's a version mm. where Seymour feeds Audrey to Audrey too. In like this horrible parody of what? somewhere that's green, yes. Like he, f- <laughs> and then he dives in with a knife and like kills the plant as he's being eaten. Like there, there are various violent, horrible, tragic endings to this thing. <laughs> um, so yeah, but I had never thought about that catharsis that happens when you see the actors all come out and take their bow. But it makes total sense. Mm. Well, it does too, especially when you consider the way this ends. The original ending. I mean, they killed Seymour with, like, no regard for the audience. There was no sympathy. There was no, mm-hmm. like, reverence to it. It was just in slow motion. We're watching Seymour, like, go towards Audrey Two's mouth. And, like, it just had no regard at all for the emotional investment that the audience has in that character. And you don't mm-hmm. really see that very often. I mean, usually they acknowledge that they're doing something really horrible. And with this, they definitely did not. And there's a part where you see Audrey, too. You know, like she's now chomping down. And then after a few minutes, she spits out his glasses. Yeah. yeah. And there's just this close-up on the glasses. And I hoped for a moment. I was like, please let that be a slap. And like a parody at, at The Great Gatsby. With the glasses, <laughs> because like it was so funny, and then that cracked me up, and that made me laugh <laughs> so seriously. I think the darkness in this was, and maybe it was just a mix of the effects or the time period or the fact that I knew it was coming. But I could totally see people in a theater, you know, getting ready to throw popcorn at a stage or jumping mm. around or pretending to be eaten by a plant or something. And they said when they were promoting this movie, they would actually do a couple skits where the Audrey Two plant was being interviewed, like by a journalist, and she would eat the journalist oh. as like part of the promotion <laughs> for the movie. And you know, I would have been there cracking up at that. So I think maybe I'm just a horrible person, but I love this movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it was uh, really quite interesting in, in reading up on this. There was a great article on the Mary Sue. Uh, which mm-hmm. is one of the great go-to places for articles of this kind, but about the 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 theatrical cut and the theatrical ending and how it's the same ending as the the play but doesn't land as well. And it turns out they've actually made a number of changes to Seymour as a character compared to how he's written in the musical. Because in the musical, he actually he is the one who kills the dentist. The dentist doesn't die by his own machinations, and then he uses his body. Seymour is the one who kills him, and he sets up Mushnik to fall into Audrey. It's not... There's an element of grey in the way it's done in the film. So by the time you get to the end and he's eaten, yeah, he has not actually done anything wrong. Whereas in the play, at that point, he deserves to die because he has done bad, evil things. Mm-hmm. So there is an element of justice to it. Oh, that's interesting. So it's it's like they wanted to have this... Uh, the tagline at the beginning you mentioned, Kelly, about having a, a hero... Like, well, he's not really a hero, but you are trying to make him seem more heroic in the cinema, but also you're trying to keep your dark ending. And and I don't think that, clearly, the two can't coexist. No, I don't think so. Hmm. Okay, I have a question for you guys. Do it. So, when I was watching this, you know, coming into this really not knowing what it was, not knowing what kind of musical it was, or really knowing very much about it, I got a little bit distracted, 
and I couldn't figure out, is this supposed to be a serious musical? Is it supposed to kind of be a parody of serious stage musicals? Because some of the acting in this was just really, really terrible and over the top. And so it's either just really bad or it's actually really good because they're being bad on purpose. And like some of the, the staging of, you know, the, the characters and, and how they did some of the, the songs and stuff, I just, I couldn't tell if really, is this supposed to be a parody or is it just supposed to be taken at face value? Um, for me, one of the reasons I love this movie so much is because it was the first genre mashup I ever saw. And I didn't know what that word meant at the time because it's part sci-fi, part horror, part comedy, part romance, part parody, and all musical. So as Lonnie Diane Rich would say, it was made specifically to delight me. And um, mm-hmm. kind of in the tradition of Rocky Horror Picture Show, um, I think that it has the campy elements in there on purpose. But some of the production choices that they made were due to the limitations of the technology at the time. So, you know, they had to have puppeteers in there operating the plant as people were interacting, you know, with that. And so I think some of their their choice of shots was limited by their location. Um, Some of it was limited by the the effects that they were trying to pull off. There was one part where they said um, Rick Moranis and one of the other characters, they couldn't shoot the scene the way they wanted to because they kept making each other laugh every <laughs> single time that they tried. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think it was intentional. I think it's a, a movie that's very self-aware. And, and we're going to talk in a minute about the Greek chorus. And I think that they serve that role of showing that the movie is self-aware and doing it kind of tongue-in-cheek. Okay. Mm. So I think it was intentional, but... I'm not a film scholar, so I could just be appreciating something that's not there. (laughs) Yeah, the first time the question popped into my head was right after, right after Seymour put Audrey II in the window, the first guy who comes in, who's, you know, all dressed in a suit, he's got the fedora on, and he starts talking, and the way he delivered his lines, the way he was talking was very over the top, very fake, and I couldn't tell if that was on purpose my first thought was oh this guy is like a cop or some guy from the government who's watching this alien and is coming to take it you know I watched too much sci-fi clearly (laughs) you know because he just he seemed fake with the way he was delivering his lines is that Christopher Guest yeah 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 I think that was intentional (laughs) okay yeah (laughs) Uh, I mean he was the first one to do it he wasn't the last um, and, and he was, he showed up more than once and he was that way every single time. And so that's kind of what started making me feel like, oh, this is intentional and it's a parody, but I just not having the expectations and not having any prior knowledge, I wasn't sure. I, I think very much it's an homage to the great schlocky B-movie horrors of the day and the people who made films like that. So it's got some of the same, uh, low budget sensibilities, but it has a good budget, so that's possibly where you're seeing this dissonance appear. Yeah, that's a good word for it, definitely. Mm-hmm. And actually, to talk to that, there's a lot that they're trying to do to match it to the to the obviously to the play and then to the original. But there's a lot that they've changed because they have a wider cast. Whereas in the original, there's basically four people and two customers who come in every day and and all of this. And two of the main characters from the original are an older couple in Joe Dante's Gremlins and Gremlins 2. And he's someone else who does this sort of homage to classic horror movies and tries to do, uh, not actually updated versions of them, but some of the same ideas in a modern way. So I think okay. it sits in, in that kind of category. I feel like... You've not seen Gremlins, have you? No. Um, is it not on the list? It should be. It might be, actually. Um, I feel like that the next time we do a movie that has that in it, I would like to be warned up front just because that way I'm not expecting it to be one thing and then disappointed and frustrated when it's different, if that makes sense. Because I think if I had known up front that this was more of a self-aware kind of parody genre thing, I wouldn't have spent so much time questioning it and wondering if I'm reading it right and I could have paid more attention to what I was actually watching. Okay. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I understand mm-hmm. that. You don't like that. <laughs> well, the teacher in me wants to say, read the clues. <laughs> but I see what you're saying because, like, I know there 
there are movies and books that, and even some of my favorite television shows today that I initially rejected because I just didn't have the familiarity with the premise or I didn't have some of the background knowledge needed to appreciate what I was about to see. And so actually for me, I like reading about the, the work before I watch the work, like hearing perspective or hearing what people appreciate, it helps me get more out of it. So I totally agree with what you're saying there. I'm just, I'm thinking about it really mostly for the show because I'm thinking back to Heathers when, when I watched Heathers. I didn't like Heathers the first time I watched it because I expected it to be something other than what it was because I didn't know any better. And so mm-hmm. when it wasn't what I was expecting, it it changed my perspective. And I spent more time being frustrated that it was different than what I was thinking it was going to be than actually enjoying what it was. And I, I think, you know, in, in normal life, when you're just watching a, a movie to watch a movie, then it's fine to go into it completely blind. But when I'm going into it, I'm probably only going to get to watch it once and then we're going to come talk about it. It's mm-hmm. helpful for me to have a little bit more background. I mean, I do like going into these things blind, so I'm not asking for plot points or anything. But I think understanding when something is supposed to be like pure camp versus a serious movie, it, mm-hmm. it's just helpful. Hmm. So if we ever do get well, to Gremlins, I know to expect some camp. <laughs> so, true confession, I have never seen Gremlins. So, I like, I know the premise, and I know there's something about water, and some of them are really cute, and some of them are really evil, but I've never actually seen the movie. That so when okay. you watch it, I'll watch it too. Yeah, that is exactly <laughs> all I know about that movie as well. Mm-hmm. Yep, I never saw that one. But I but I hear what you're saying about mixed expectations because, um, like, one of my favorite movies of all time is uh, Shakespeare in Love. And the first time I saw it, I hated it. I was like, what the hell is this? This is not Shakespeare. I don't understand what they're doing. And I, I think I turned it off after, like, 15 minutes. Oh, gosh. Um, yeah. <laughs> and and I, I can recite it now. Like I, I've seen it so many times. But it just... I don't know if it has part of it being, you know, open to a certain experience and kind of knowing what you're getting into, or if it just comes up against resistance when you don't know what to expect. Um, But yeah, I could see how sort of understanding the authorial intent would help you with that. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm going to suggest a shorthand for thinking about this in future. If the main actors are played by people from Saturday Night Live, this is one that's got some self-knowing campiness. Okay, fair enough. But but I'm looking through the list. I'm like, okay, let's make a note and just think about this. And it's like, okay, Blues Brothers. Oh, yeah, the Ghostbusters films. Oh, Groundhog Day. Yeah. Okay, point taken. That might be a really good tool, Matthew. Okay, we don't have anything else to talk about until we get to our favorite moments, and I feel like this has been really short. <laughs> I, I was thinking about this during the week, as uh, having watched it and thinking about right, what are we going to discuss, and oh, there's the ending, that's a big thing, there's differences to the show, there's some stuff there. But by and large, this isn't a film where I'd, I'd go away and talk about all oh, the depth of the theme and the nuance they're showing in this. I just want to gush about how good it is, because it's yeah. fun. Can we <laughs> yeah. just like sing the songs? Yes, I would love for y'all to sing and just sing for me. That would be freaking awesome. I can okay. do the oh, 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 please sing for me thing. I can't sing along with y'all. <laughs> but I think I really would love to hear your favorite part. And that's kind of my favorite like theme right now in life anyway. Let's it is. your favorite part. Like, I love that. And okay. what's your favorite song? So like, what's your favorite part of the movie? And what's your favorite song? I think that would be fun. Right. Mandy, go. My favorite song is Grow For Me, which is why I chose it to introduce the episode with, because it's just amazing. I'm not going to sing it, though, because I kind of already did. And I think my favorite part of the movie is the happily ever after ending. Because of the fabulous dresses she gets to wear. She does get to wear some pretty fabulous dresses. Yeah. (laughs) And she has a wedding dress just waiting (laughs) in her house. There was no shopping required. I did not make a note about that, but that was my first thought, too. I was like, who just has a wedding dress in their closet? Especially when you've been dating, like, motorcycle dentist Elvis Steve Martin. Like, why do you just have this wedding dress? I 
don't know. I kind of love that about her. Like, she has a costume change for anything life throws at her. Mm. Audrey's ready to go. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, she is dressed wonderfully when she's in Skid Row. Yes. And it's, it's very tight and a fair bit revealing, but she does look good in it. But then when you see her in those flowing 50s gowns and prancing around the house dusting and looking after everything, she looks incredible. Yeah, mm-hmm. she even has a line in, in her song. I cook like Betty Crocker and I look like Donna Reed. Yeah. And I, I love that line. I mean, that's my least favorite song in, in the whole show. But it made me smile the whole time I was watching it, which mm-hmm. I think is pretty awesome. You know, when you, you can take something that I'm not really enjoying listening to in my ears and still smile. That's pretty awesome. Uh, the other thing I wanted to mention that I really, really, really enjoyed was, um, I think this is the movie that introduced Tisha Campbell to the world. She's one of yes. the girls in the Greek chorus, and mm-hmm. she was so committed to her part, and it was amazing, and I loved it. I had no idea she could sing, and I loved watching her. Her facial expressions, just how into all of the songs that she was, was fantastic. What else have you seen her in? Um, she just, she's done a lot of sitcoms. She was Martin's wife in the sitcom Martin. Um, okay. I actually didn't look her up to see what else she might be in because that's just the thing that pops into my head. But I know I know she's done other stuff that I've seen. Um, is is she the one from Everybody Hates Chris? I think so. I think so. I think one of them because I was looking up them up. I haven't really seen them in anything. So yeah, when I saw that's her name, I was like, that name is really really familiar. But like the image of the woman who popped into my head, I was like, she's not a singer. Like, that's not her. And then I saw her. <laughs> and it was totally her. And then I kept watching her just because I kind of wanted to see. And it was it was fantastic. Um, oh, she was also on My Wife and Kids, which was another sitcom. <laughs> which I've not even heard of. <laughs> it uh, is a Way and Brothers sitcom. Okay. So one of the Way and Brothers. She says dismissively, ugh. <laughs> kind of yeah yeah um but i mean i i know her from the tv show martin from the 90s early 90s right. so she's fantastic there was there was one of the chorus in fact yeah it is tisha campbell who wasn't able to come back and refilm the new ending with the the lovely house and them going in mm-hmm. uh having just gotten married so as the chorus walks through the the camera pans down to the small audrey too and you only see the third one from the waist down as she goes past. I didn't even notice that. <laughs> yeah, it's really mm-hmm. clever. Yeah. <laughs> Very yeah. cool. What about you, Matthew? A favourite song is probably Dadu. I would never have guessed because you tweeted <laughs> that and you put it in, you know, the outline. I just would never have thought that you were interested in that song. It's it's wonderful. It's such a short song. But it does so much so well. The the, the first shot of the uh, the chorus, and they they open it by going "Daddy," and and he's walking along in Skid Row. Rick Moranis walks along with his his hands in his pockets, and he's got this whole street urchin thing going on that, that really does work for him. But then in this, he's sort of bouncing along the pavement in his nice sort of baseball jacket shirt. He's having a nice happy day and says hello to the nice Chinese plant salesman. So it's it's performed really nicely, and then the song is just so catchy, because the dadu changes almost every line, depending on what he's said before. And when the light came back, this weird plant was just sitting there, just you know, stuck in uh, among the zinnias. <laughs> yeah, when you had actually um, inserted dadu as the placeholder for my intro. My first thought was, I, I don't really know how that goes. And so I went and watched the song. And I was like, well, which one is he wanting me to do? Because they're all different. <laughs> Every time, they're different. <laughs> and, like, some of them are like, oh, I can't even think of it right now. But th- there was one that I almost did that was, like, very, very doo and, like, kind of long. <laughs> it was great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and, of course, it's the one that has that great crescendo of... When suddenly, and without warning, there was this... Yeah. Yes. And it got very dark. <laughs> yes. It's the, 
suddenly and without warning. That's yeah. my favorite part of that. Yes, that's my favorite line in that song. I love it. Yeah. Because, I so mean, good. I'm sorry. We just experienced a total eclipse of the sun, and it was neither suddenly nor without warning. Because <laughs> it moved really slow, you guys. <laughs> so I was just, like, cracking up at that moment. But Rick Moranis sells everything in this movie. His face mm. is incredible. I, I mentioned one of the uh, do what guys, because he stands and has this little do what moment with these guys on the side of the road. And one of them is one of the puppeteers. And one of the other ones is a gentleman called Danny John Jules, who is most famous for playing the cat in Red Dwarf. Oh, so that makes that. me really happy as well. Yeah. <laughs> Very cool. And we had a kids program called um, Maid Marion and Her Merry Men. And he's he's the sort of reggae rap singer <laughs> of the Merry Men. Oh, I love oh, it. Very cool. Good fun. Yeah. yeah. That's awesome. I really liked the addition of the the men in that song doing the like kind of counterpoint to our Greek mm. chorus. Um, mm. I almost wish that we had gotten them in more songs. But the girls were so wonderful that I can't find any fault with them. Yeah, I expected to see them in the Skid Row Ensemble, but they're not there. That's the only moment I think they appear. Mm-hmm. Really strange. Um, fa- favorite moments? I- I'm going to probably put two forward. I love the turn from uh, Rick Moranis during Feed Me. His vocal style is completely different to Audrey 2's and, and the, the the way the song changes. It's a re- really nice counterpoint. But then as he starts getting into it he says oh, i'd really like a harley machine you know, tooling around like james dean and he, he starts buying into it but he's still no this is murder we can't do it and then you have the sequence of them watching the dentist and audrey and he turns back and it's it he's fully committed into working with audrey too on this you know, the guy sure looks like plant food to me. yeah <laughs> that's a great scene <laughs> he looks like plant food to me too so i'm good with that <laughs> It's it's a wonderful turn. It's just so well, because you follow him every step, that yes, he'll get something for himself from this, but he'll be helping Audrey as well. He'll get rid of uh, this dentist who's horrible to everyone. I almost said he'll be helping Audrey too, and I realised that was ambiguous. <laughs> <laughs> but I would be remiss if I didn't mention Steve Martin and his song. Because that was one of the moments I remember discussing with my friends, just how cool he was, how funny it was him just going around punching the nurse, who again is a, a British comedy actress um, who's been in Harry Potter and Blackadder and all sorts. And the, the pulling the uh, head off the doll that he does behind his back. And that, mm-hmm. that's, that's mm-hmm. the physicality of Steve Martin. You know, as a trained magician, he does this stuff without looking because he knows exactly what he's doing at all times. And, and the dealing with Rob Scheider and the, the, just the fantastic moment in the middle of, oh, mama. That's <laughs> <laughs> so funny. <laughs> the whole thing just has so many gags in, in two minutes. Mm-hmm. Okay, but am I the only one who thinks that Steve Martin sounds like Nathan Fillion in that song? No, I see that. A little. It, to me, it was kind of this mix of, like, Elvis, and there's a little bit of Nathan Fillion in there. There's some just raw Steve Martin. Like, he's, you know, this was my first Steve Martin role. Like, this is okay. the first time I ever saw him. So, he, to me, is always the sadist Dennis. Like, always. <laughs> and, and he's a horrible person, you know? Mm. And yet, you just still can't help singing along and kind of... Now, I am fully on board with him being fed to Audrey, too. Like, that dude deserves to be plant food. Um, <laughs> but he was still incredibly compelling and, and able to be funny even when he was being, you know, so horrifically torturous to, to the people around him. And as a kid, I think especially at the age when I was watching this, I had to go through a lot of dental work, a lot of dental surgeries, a lot of dental... It was just a disaster, y'all. It was awful for years and years and years. And it made me feel better to know because like I knew that my dentist was like a demented serial killer. I, I, I had no question <laughs> about this. And I <laughs> felt like reassured that yes, evil dentists were a thing. Um, but mine didn't <laughs> sing and dance and, and it would have been more fun if he had. <laughs> okay. And it's really funny. You're saying that's what you think of Steve Martin from, because he normally plays these very genuine, nice, intelligent. I guys. know, right. <laughs> <laughs> always like the evil sadist it is to me always like <laughs> <Terrific>. <laughs> I 
I think he comes home at night and like whips a toothbrush out of his pocket and he's like, do what I say. Like, I just, <laughs> but it still cracks me up even when I think of him doing that. So, yeah. His hair really freaked me out. This is the only thing I've ever seen him in where his hair was not white. That was a wig. I'm, well, I mean, I'm sure it was, but. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm it saying, was... yeah, it was, and it's the only thing he's ever been in with his hair that color. Okay. Yeah. Okay, yeah. cool. So I'm not the only yeah. one who, who might be freaked no. out by that. Okay. No, no. All right. So, Kelly, you aren't allowed to name the whole film. Nah. You can't <laughs> name more than 50% of the songs, but what are your favorite songs and moments? So, my favorite part of the movie is the Greek chorus, um, mm. other than the music, but I love the Greek chorus. I love the fact that we have a Greek chorus. I love the role that it plays in this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I love the girls themselves with their attitude and, and their ability to interact with the audience and kind of, you know, wink at us and show us some things behind the scenes. And um, And I like their involvement in the story as well. I just think that they were flawlessly done. Yeah. And they were all named after girl bands from the 1950s and 60s. Which I thought was oh, really cool. lovely. <laughs> um, the Chiffons, the Crystals, and the Ronettes, like they were real bands, so that's where their names come from. And two of those actresses were 15 and 16 years old when they wow. took this on. So, so to be that young, to me, they carried the storyline. Like they, they were, you know, all the way through, and they, they had this kind of magical presence and just this power of, of stage presence and their voices were amazing. Their costumes, oh God, y'all, their costumes the are purple. just incredible. The purple one um, was amazing. Oh, right, I know. And and like and how the rain doesn't fall on them and you know, Frank Oz wanted to have a spotlight on them everywhere they went and they weren't able to do that with the production setup. But making sure the rain didn't fall on them in that one scene was kind of a way of introducing magic around them. And I thought it just worked beautifully. But, you know, I just, I think that they break the fourth wall a little bit, you know, singing to the audience mm-hmm. and tell us, hey, we know something you don't know, you know. But just to do that in such a wonderfully musical way, they they just, they made the movie for me. I adore them. I mean, I love yeah. Rick Moranis and he's wonderful, but the Greek chorus is my favorite thing. Yeah, they they are the thing that elevate this from just an, an ordinary musical because like you say they're integrated into everything that's going on and they help us understand a bit because it's always a bit strange when you're watching a musical and suddenly the townsfolk are singing with them <laughs> <laughs> right yes <laughs> and, and they help add to like the yeah, the song supper time and, and them coming out of the dark it just adds to the sinister feeling of the song yes. that wouldn't necessarily come across in the sets they had so they found Absolutely. another way to introduce it. And, and it's really interesting how I think it's Feed Me and Mean Green Mother are the two songs they don't join in on. Right, right. And it, it's funny because um, Mean Green Mother from Outer Space was nominated for the Academy Award for Best Original Song in 1987. Mm-hmm. And it was the first nominated song ever to contain profanity or to have cuss words in it. Okay. Um, and personally, I've always loved like the sassy, foul-mouthed, badass a- alien, you know, Audrey too. Like, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> but I thought it was interesting that that was actually the first song, you know, to have cussing in it that was nominated mm. for that kind of award. And it lost out to um, "Take My Breath Away" from Top Gun, I think. Oh. But, but it was nominated, you know, for that. My favorite song, and again, y'all, I don't know what this says about me as a person. This this movie has me questioning, you know, <laughs> my myself, but is uh, Skid Row downtown for the verse that says, poor. All my life I've always been poor. I keep asking God what I'm for. And he tells me, gee, I'm not sure. Sweep that floor, kid. Oh my God. Like, I need y'all to sing that line for me because I can't sing it. And it's wonderful. Um, And it cracks me up every time. And so this movie is, you know, kind of campy sci-fi and over the top and silly in parts. But it does address poverty in a real way. Mm. You know, we see a local business having to close, you know, in a terribly depressing and depressed neighborhood and the whole movie just reeks of poverty and alcohol and violence and desperation and despair and it's sad and kind of harrowing but at the same time it still has this humor you know in it and I think Seymour and Audrey we see them 
kind of the effects of being raised in poverty and the mentality that comes from knowing your choices are limited and that no one ultimately cares about your well-being. You know, if you're on Skid Row, then you're kind of at the, the bottom of the barrel. Um, and, I, and I really love how they, how they play that off in that song and um, what it does for the movie. You know, even though it's still campy and silly and fun, as, as someone who grew up in poverty, I just relate to that a lot. I wonder, though, Seymour only decided to stop feeding Audrey, too, once he found out that Audrey loved him for who he was. Mm-hmm. And so I wonder if he had never had that revelation, if he would have continued just to try and be who he thought she wanted. I think he could have rationalized a few more deaths hmm. because he, he ultimately did rationalize the ones that happened. And Audrey, too, lays it out. She's like, you know, I can help you get all the things in life that you want. All you got to do is feed me. And, hey, there's plenty of bad people in the world. And, you know, this is a win-win <laughs> kind of thing. So, yeah, I think that was his his character arc of realizing that oh by the way also when you set a serial killer plant out in the world it might eat the people you like as well as the people you don't (laughs) yeah i was surprised by that honestly because i've i felt like it it was building up as if audrey too was appreciative of seymour and like they were friendly and then all of a sudden there's this turn where Seymour decides the price is too high and instantly Audrey too is like, oh, okay, well then I'm going to eat Audrey. Mm-hmm. And it, it was shocking to me. I didn't see that coming. I thought that when, when Audrey too picked up the phone and called Audrey, I thought, oh, that's really clever. He's going to use Audrey as leverage to get Seymour to do what he wants, but he's like, nope, I'm just going to eat her then. Yeah. And it, it surprised me because I was expecting their relationship to be different, but I guess when you have a serial killer plant, he's only looking out for himself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or, um, or herself. Cause I mean, green mother, which I kind of love too. I love the, the gender fluidity of the plant because you have this male voice and yet you have this mom, side of the plant and I always thought that was really cool but yeah I think once once it got to the point that it was not dependent on Seymour anymore all bets were off yeah you're you're right you know yeah got what I need and now I'm ready to take over the world and you know nice knowing you but (laughs) I've always taken mother as being a well like a another swear almost he's he's a badass mother yeah yeah (laughs) I guess the babies. Uh, I guess all the baby plants just kind of made me think that it was, I don't know, mm. there was this duality in the the gender of the, and I'm probably overthinking that too, but I just thought it was really cool that you have these <laughs> adorable little baby plants that are, you know, going to grow up and take over the world. <laughs> Audrey too was definitely adorable as a baby. And yeah. even, even as it got older, when, <laughs> when um, Seymour was doing the radio spot, and mm-hmm. the plant was like go, going after the the woman who was bending over the desk in front of it. You know, I was cracking up because I was like, "It's adorable!" Because it's like a little dog or a cat or like some sort of pet that Seymour has to keep control of. Um, but then it got too big and and like people eating size, and it wasn't cute anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but the the plants themselves, the puppets, were amazing, um, and they had to build six different ones so the the smallest one was four inches tall the biggest one was over 12 feet tall and it took 60 people to operate the big one on set um and i thought it was neat two of jim henson's children were actually involved with little shop of horrors so brian henson operated the audrey two puppet during the feed me song and heather henson was the dental patient the poor girl with the horrible braces that bill murray talks to that so that was his son and daughter both in the movie. I thought that was pretty cool. That is cool. Can I ask a uh, an outsider's question on Skid Row? The original movie is Skid Row, Los Angeles. This is Skid mm-hmm. Row, New York. I, mm-hmm. Is it just moved because of the reputation New York had at this time? Um, I don't think so. I think that they actually shot this film. I want to say they shot it in England. I'm not sure. Yeah, but Pinewood. They, it, it looked more like New York. And I think that one of the big goals was to destroy New York City at the end. 
And so they kind of pick location with that in mind. But I did, um, of course, being the geek that I am, looked up <laughs> the history of the word Skid Row and come to find out it is the actual name of a real neighborhood in L.A. Mm. that is the homeless mecca of the United States. It's the highest homeless population in the entire country is actually Skid Row, L.A., and that is a real neighborhood. But the word itself has come to be associated with any rundown, low-rent, you know, kind of neighborhood. And the reason it, it started kind of in the 1920s and 30s with the logging industry in the Pacific Northwest in the U.S. And so they actually would would take the logs and run them down like a road or a river. And so these loggers would come in and put up shanties and temporary housing along that road and then if one of them got fired, they were said to be sent down Skid Row, like they were sent down with the logs. And so it, it became synonymous with like temporary housing and poverty and, and kind of the rough living that comes along with that. So I think it's synonymous for that type of neighborhood anywhere you find it, more so than like a specific city. Right. right. And there was an interesting thing I found when looking at, at Skid Row as well. There, there's a band called Skid Row. Um, an old metal band, yeah. But it was it was actually Nirvana's the the original name of the band Nirvana. Yes, Kurt Cobain started Skid Row before he mm. started Nirvana. <laughs> yep, absolutely. <laughs> Very okay. Cool. So, and as much as I love this movie, I will say there was one thing I wish I could change, and okay. it just bugs me every time I watch it. So you have Audrey when she's kind of singing the Suddenly Seymour, you know, song. And she talks about like following bad guy after bad guy, and they snap their finger, and she she says sure, and we hear her say sure like all the way through the movie. This is her response, you know, to anything that anyone asks her. And so when Seymour asked her to marry him, I wish I wish she would have said yes and not sure. And I wish she would have fed that sadist dentist to the plant herself. So, like, her lack of agency in this drives me crazy. But the movie was supposed to be set, like, in the 1960s. And, of course, that is not a feminist you know, story or, or, like, a feminist mm -hmm. time period. But just changing that one word from sure to yes, I think, would have made a huge difference. Because how do we know that she's not just following one more guy you know, like, it's no different. She's responding to him the same way that she's responded to other men. And it just bugs me. I think that's a fair criticism. Hmm. But it's, like, one word in the whole movie that I would change. The rest of it I love. <laughs> yeah, it's hard, because I, I, I see exactly what you're saying. If she'd said yes, it would have been her taking an active step. But there is also, like you say, she says... Sure, and she doesn't say sure. She says... Sure. Yeah. <laughs> And that's, yeah, it's it's kind of a cute thing. So it's uh, continuing her catchphrase typeness. Well, talking about Audrey, why, why is her voice the way that it is? Because that's not Ellen Green's real voice. She's, like, choosing to talk mm -hmm. like a baby. And I think that's exactly why. Yeah. So, I mean, it, you hear her real voice when she sings. So, but yeah, I think yeah. That, that it speaks to expectation of, of femininity in the time period mm -hmm. you are you know where you're literally supposed to be more childlike innocent and sweet um accommodating you know and and so that sweet high-pitched kind of baby voice i think it's just an embodiment of that at the time okay because I and also the the relationship she's in trying to be as inoffensive as possible yeah yeah talking nicely and sweetly I went and looked up YouTube videos of her because I just, I needed to know that that wasn't actually her voice because I was fairly <laughs> no, certain it wasn't, you know, because, because when she sings, you could hear like when she had to hit those higher, more powerful notes, you could hear her real voice. And mm -hmm. I remember thinking, wow, her singing voice is so much better than her fake baby speaking voice in this movie. And the very first thing I pulled up was uh, one of her appearances on the Johnny Carson show. And she came out and did the voice as if it was her regular voice. And I was like, "Awesome! why are you giving an interview in this voice? And so then I was like, well, maybe that is her real voice. And so then I had to watch something else. And that was when I was like, okay, good. That's not actually how she talks. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, she committed to it for sure. 
The blonde wig was also her idea. So mm-hmm. the uh, the original Audra character was supposed to be a brunette, mm-hmm. and she she kind of picked out the the look and feel of that of that wig. Okay, it was all you could definitely tell that everything about Audrey's character was done intentionally. Oh yeah. So is there anything else that we want to talk about for Little Shop of Horrors? There was one more thing that I wanted just to mention because it kind of weirded me out a little bit. And I tried to think of other examples of musicals that have done the same thing and I couldn't come up with any. So maybe you guys can, but the beginning of the movie, there, there are two songs right at the beginning, the prologue with the guy doing the voiceover and, you know, that introduces the idea of little shop of horrors. And then we get the skid row song and it isn't until after that second song that we learn who the main character of the movie is. It could be anybody because Seymour doesn't even sing until the end of Skid Row. And so I found it an interesting choice that in this movie, we don't know who the cast of characters is right up front. It takes a solid, you know, 10 minutes to figure that out. And I don't know that I've really seen that happen before. Or am I just failing to remember something that's very obvious and like normalized? I, I feel like it's a normal musical thing because you, you, usually your introductory song is the ensemble singing something, but with your stars singing the central verse of it. And, and like you say, it's the end of that song where he and Audrey start doing this du- duet but not singing together and then coming together on a corner with the ensemble behind them and everyone doing stuff. I feel like it's a musical trope rather than okay. a, a movie trope. Okay. Yeah, maybe so. I'm trying to think of another example and... I don't know that I have one off the top of my head. I mean, Les Mis does it. It's the end oh, of Look Down yes. that introduces uh, Valjean and Javert. Okay. Yeah. I guess I just wasn't paying attention, and I was so focused on what was happening on the screen that all of a sudden I realized, I don't know who any of these people are. Do any of these people even matter? You know, and that just struck me as weird. Even though, I mean, <laughs> I knew that Seymour is supposed to be the main character because... Like I said, I had heard the line, feed me Seymour, which I don't actually think is in the movie, but that's how I had always heard it. And so I I knew when Rick Moranis showed up that he was the main character, but it just, it took a while to get there. Uh, the other thing was, was the voiceover at the beginning added because they changed the ending? Oh, that's a good question. I don't know the answer to that. Because I was listening to the soundtrack this morning and it... That prologue doesn't make sense if at the end the Audrey twos take over. Hmm. And so I didn't know if that was always part of the song or if that was something they added to kind of let everybody know up front that everything's okay and the world doesn't end. I don't know. I didn't pick up on that. That's a really good question. I, I don't think so because I don't think that's an original song, the prologue. Okay. And I think the the, the voiceover is part of the prologue, uh, part of the song effectively. Right. It is on at least on the movie soundtrack, so mm. okay. Little shop of horrors. <laughs> My favorite line there is little shop of terror. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like call a cop. <laughs> like, like, like I love how they all the stuff that they got to rhyme with shop in there is so <laughs> funny. <laughs> yeah, it's great. My my reaction to that song initially was basically this song is really catchy and sounds amazing, but I have no idea what it's about. <laughs> because I was <laughs> there's so much happening on the screen and you've got these girls who are just awesome that like I wasn't able to focus on the words that they were saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so it was basically like I don't know what's happening, but I love it. <laughs> it's fantastic. I like how they, they kind of change stuff around so you have that no Oh 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 no! <laughs> like they have to yeah. go in there and the watch them drop. Like cracks <laughs> me up too. Like I always thought it was really funny. I, I like where they almost get run over and they all like look out, look out, look out. Yeah, and it's absolutely valid. Yeah, it's like isn't there something in there like tell your mom, like tell your mama something's out to get her. <laughs> it's very funny. Like, it's just yeah, you better beware. I love it. I love it. Nice. So. We have picked over every part of this plant. Um, Kelly, do you have any recommendations for uh, Mandy's list of things to see? Oh, yes. 
So um, <laughs> get out a pad. <laughs> yes, I mean make a list, honey. First and foremost is My Blue Heaven, um, which was written by the fantastic Nora Ephraim because it reunites Steve Martin and Rick Moranis. And it is one of my top 10 all favorite movies of all time. And I really hope you watch it. And if you do, I hope you let me know. I'd love to talk to you about it. Um, That movie is so funny and so wonderful. And the two of them together are just fantastic. I would also recommend Pushing Daisies starring Lee Pace because Ellen Green is in there and her character is fantastic. And Pushing Daisies is visually stunning it's a very unique storyline i mean you have a pie maker that has this ability to bring people back from the dead for a second and solve crimes i mean it is fantastic um and then of course in the musical tradition i would say dr horrible sing-along blog with neil patrick harris nathan fillion and felicia day um and then my second favorite no third favorite Steve Martin performance is <laughs> Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, which was also directed by Frank Oz. Okay, you are not the first person to suggest My Blue Heaven. No. And in fact, I think it was Lonnie who suggested it first, but I could be wrong. I think I mentioned it when we had Lonnie on, and she went, oh, yes, 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 yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's so... I think in my household, the, the two movies, the three movies that are quoted maybe daily... It's The Princess Bride, My Cousin Minnie, and My Blue Heaven. Okay. Like, well, then is, I definitely need to see My Blue Heaven. So I think yeah. I think it, we did actually add it to the list, but I'm not positive. It should be if we didn't. Yeah. I might have added most of Steve Martin's. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. okay. but, but Dirty Rotten Scandals is also mm. wonderful because the twist on the ending of that movie is so unexpected. And it's Steve Martin and Michael Caine. And then, again, you have Frank Oz, you know, kind of bringing out the best of mm. both of them. And it's so funny. It's so good. I think that one is also on the list. Pushing Daisies, I did see when it was on TV, and I was so bummed it got canceled. Oh, me too. And you can't possibly think that I have not seen Dr. Horrible. Well, it wasn't on the list, so I didn't know. I didn't want to make assumptions. I had hoped you had seen that one. Um, Because, yeah, Nathan Fillion's singing. I mean, come on. Yeah. Yeah, no, I saw that um, as as they released it. Um, oh, during, and then you, the you did better strike, than me. So, yeah, yeah, you did better than me on that. Um, That's awesome. And I yeah, had... just just hitting F five like those every Thursday in a row. Like, come on, release yeah. damn episode. <laughs> yeah, um, and I, I listen to the soundtrack quite frequently. In fact, on my Spotify, I have a playlist called Awesome Geek Musicals that started with Doctor Horrible soundtrack. So. I would love a copy of that playlist or like a list of. The songs. I think that would honestly, be right now. I need to add uh, Little Shop of Horrors to it. Right now, it is Once More with Feeling, Dr. Horrible, yep. and um, the only good musical episode of Xena that exists. Oh, okay, Because the cool. second one we don't talk about. Oh. <laughs> the uh, When I found out that Once More with Feeling was available as a soundtrack from iTunes, I remember just thinking, oh my God, technology is the best thing in the freaking world. <laughs> like, I can <laughs> listen to all that music all the time, and it's wonderful. Yes. But it, it's it's interesting that between this and the two Steve Martin films you've mentioned, they're all ones where his hair is different than, yeah. than the normal look of him. Yeah. Yeah, that's really funny. That's true. That's true. <laughs> it's good. I love My Blue Heaven as well. It is absolutely one of my favorites. I, I love him as an actor and a performer anyway, but oh, that's such a good film. It's so good. It's just so good. Arugula. I haven't had arugula in six weeks. What's that? It's a vegetable. <laughs> which it's not, right? I know, which it's not. It okay, okay. Cracks me up. Well, I guess it is. It's a green. How is arugula like a, not a vegetable? It's a leafy. Yeah, no, it is. I was just thinking it's a leafy green. So it's I an guess herb. It's a, that, that was my first thought, but yeah. It's a, but we don't have arugula over here. You have rockets. We have rockets. Yeah, you have no, rockets. Good. <laughs> yeah. They just call things weird things in the UK. That's all. I use so many lines from that movie. You know, it's not tipping, I believe in. It's over tipping. You don't tip <laughs> FBI guys. I tip everybody. Right. Like, oh my God, I love that That's movie. the only one you're allowed. Save it for the show. Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> and you'll cut that out of this because it doesn't, yeah, cut out of this. It doesn't fit, but. No, I want, I want to hear you giggling over the film, but. <laughs> 
All right. Well, we had some listener feedback on our Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade episode that I'd like to share with everybody. And the first one makes me so very happy. (laughs) Nick Sequera, who is at the Stubby Tech on Twitter, said, You're not alone, Mandy Kay. I didn't realize Zeppelins were used outside of alternative dystopian realities until the last PC deprived. I am so happy that I am not the only one who thought they weren't real. You just don't even know. I was so embarrassed. So thank you for being wrong with me. (laughs) And we also had um, our friend Carrie at We Do Words. She said, I was really happy to hear Mandy Kay like The Last Crusade. I didn't realize I cared until you said it, Mandy. And then I let out a big breath and smiled. Also, the moment when Indy's father pulls out his umbrella to send the birds up is one of my faves. Thanks for another great ep. Oh, and perfect point about Indian women. Totally agree. So thank you guys for leaving feedback. We read everything you guys send, and we really appreciate it. And there are a lot of ways that you can do that. If you want to give us your comments on this or any other movie we've discussed, you can use the hashtag PCDeprived on Twitter. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at eloquentgushing. You can also email us using podcast at eloquentgushing.com. You can find each of us on Twitter. I'm at Mandy Kay. And I'm at Matthew Vose. Kelly, it has been an absolute delight having you. Thank you for joining us on this one. Um, Where can people find you in the world? Oh, thank y'all so much for having me on this. It has been so much fun to talk to you both. And I love the show, so I'm glad that people are tuning in. I'm on Twitter at Dr. Kelly Jones. You can find me on the Big Strong Yes podcast with Lonnie Diane Rich at chipperish.com and the Southern Fried Scholar at southernfriedscholar.com. And Matthew, total side note, I won serious mom points with my 18-year-old <laughs> because I was able to explain the origin of the band title Led Zeppelin. Because I learned that from you on (laughs) that Indiana Jones episode. So thank you for that, because you helped me be a cool mom. (laughs) You're very welcome. My my Wikipedia fact recall is uh, obviously helping. (laughs) (laughs) Pop Culturally Deprived is completely funded by listeners like you through our Patreon page. Anything you can give, just $1 a month and upwards, gives access to exclusive content and helps to support the network. To find out more, visit patreon.com slash eloquentgushing. And don't forget we have a newsletter with news and announcements about the weeks coming up. The link is on eloquentgushing.com. We'll be back next week with another episode of Pop Culturally Deprived, where Matthew and I will talk about David Tennant, Matt Smith, and Peter Capaldi's key episodes of Doctor Who. Until next time, I'm Mandy Kay. And I'm just a mean green mother from outer space. And I'm bad. Pop Culturally Deprived is an Eloquent Gushing production. For more information, go to eloquentgushing.com or find us on Twitter at Eloquent Gushing.